Our number one priority is to come up with a new deal for the world, which is inclusive and which is green, unlike the original new deal. That must be the main priority of the Progressive International. That was Yanis Varoufakis, the flamboyant politician and economist who has fashioned himself into Europe's standard bearer for internationalism. Late last year, he stood side by side with America's unofficial leading leftist, Bernie Sanders, and announced a new progressive international. I'm Thanasi Kambanis, and you're listening to the TCF World Podcast, episode 27. There's been an increasingly vigorous debate in the United States of America about what a progressive foreign policy would look like, but there's been far less talk about how much America should care about the world at all. Today, we have two guests, Atusa Araxa Abrahamian is a senior editor at The Nation and has written extensively about the left and internationalism. Welcome, Atusa. Thanks for having me. Sam Adler-Bell was a senior associate at the Century Foundation and now a journalist who writes extensively about American progressive politics and left politics. Hi. Hi, Sam. Thanks for having me. Great to have you both here. Uh, Tusa, you profiled Yanis Varoufakis for The Nation, and you delved into this progressive international. I think you even attended the launch. The name, to me, sort of evokes the socialist international or the common turn of the Cold War days. Can you tell us what is the progressive international? So for now, the progressive international is a website. Uh, There's a very inspiring video, and there's some extremely, you know, thoughtful rhetoric and language around uh, what the U.S., what countries and what people in the world owe each other and how to uh, reform our international institutions to serve the people, not to serve capital. So that's the basic idea. Um, The other idea behind this is that by sort of rallying behind a progressive international, the left can help defeat the illiberal international or the um, nationalist international that uh, Steve Bannon and his ilk have been trying to form by financing elections abroad, by helping parties on the right coordinate their social media. Um, This coordinated operation is happening on the right, uh, and the the rationale is why shouldn't it happen on the left? Why can't leftists help each other? Is it an actual thing? Early days, early days. (laughs) Uh, I think that Varoufakis would very much like it to be a thing. I think that a lot of a lot of people, even people who don't like him, uh, would like this to be more of a thing, right? Because finance has global networks, the far right has global net- networks, centrists have global networks, the left, you know, they have they have the World Social Forum, they have, um, you know, they share consultants sometimes, they definitely help on the grassroots level with organizing, but there isn't this overarching leftist international, and uh, I think there is a need for that, for sure. Well, so there there seem to be two, two dimensions, at least, to making this work. And one is shared sentiment, and I guess the website contains some of that. The other is organizational resources, money, uh, a team of people. When I think of, of Steve Bannon's operation, I think of Steve Bannon and all that cash behind him, able to, to go places and give advice and then make it make it into a reality. Yeah, I don't think Soros is behind this one. Um, I don't think that there's a... That's almost too bad, right? uh, Yeah, it's for sure. (laughs) Varoufakis has founded a pan-European party called DiEM25. It consists of parties in different countries running for European Parliament. They have representatives. And I think that the idea there was to actually get electoral support 
in various European countries for a party that stands for progressive international ideas, such as the Green New Deal for Europe. They talk a lot about socializing um, benefits and not uh, socializing losses. They want to democratize international decision-making and they want to internationalize taxation and finance. Right. They want to uh, share revenues from social media platforms among all of their users. It's all very idealistic. Uh, I don't know that they're running on all of these specific points in Europe, but they do have an electoral operation, and that, I think, is probably the closest we're getting to actual organizing, um, actual organizational principles on the ground. And, uh, you know, they're not polling too well, so I don't know how well that's going. And how does that kind of internationalism play in America, Sam? I think that there's a rising sort of sense of the importance of internationalism on the U.S. left. But there's definitely been, I think, over the past few decades of forgetting of the like internationalist dimension of like socialist politics, for example. Right, it's been all about war. Yeah, war or not war. That's been the, the exactly. guiding principle of internationalism in the States since 9-11, basically. Exactly. And people, and I think candidates who are of the left, who are running for president right now, are getting a lot of credit for even having any foreign policy at all. Um, you know, Bernie Sanders... Really graded on a curve, huh? Yeah, I think they are. And I think Bernie Sanders gave his big speech where he talked about the axis of authoritarianism, which plays well, but also doesn't totally make sense to like combine China and Russia and all these um, different countries into this. You know, especially if your answer is isolation um, as opposed to engagement. Um, and when you start talking about axes, people start getting worried um, about intervention. But it's good that they're talking about uh, this stuff. But I think that maybe what it sounds like the Progressive International is meant to do or what Giannis's project is, um, is to expand what it is um, that counts as foreign policy. You know, politicizing these international institutions um, like the World Bank, the IMF, the International Labor Organization. Um, I think that Giannis's argument and what the M25 is saying is that there's these massively powerful international institutions that are just sitting there and that, that, you know, finance, basic global finance has control over. And the left ought to be contesting for power within those institutions. I think that's going to be like a hard argument to make in any local context, but it's totally interesting and compelling to me. What Varoufakis has going for him, I think, is that he really understands international finance. He really understands these international institutions. And so what he can bring to the table is, hey, I know how this works. These are the various layers that can be removed or reformed or replaced. Um, And so he has a a knowledge that I think a lot of normal people actually don't because this stuff is pretty boring. Yeah. And I think also like there is a a value in the U.S. context and globally just to put internationalist ideas back into the debate of the left. Um, Like, we, you know, it's not that complicated to say you know, that a worker in Athens has more in common with a worker in um, London than with the global financiers who are controlling, you know, who are constraining and controlling their lives to some degree. Um, that's a very old idea. But just talking to people about that again actually has value, I think. And, you know, Varoufakis, I think to his credit, continues to say that borders are scars um, on the globe. And, you know, while that's sort of a platitude, 
it's also not something that um, it's also true. It's also true, and it's and it's and there's there's been a real concession to the right um, amongst liberals and amongst many leftists too. I mean, I think you see. I think it's interesting that within a pretty short amount of time, we saw Hillary Clinton say that actually, yeah, European governments need to be control, you know, migration and the influx of refugees, or else they're going to lose. Liberals are going to lose too many elections to the to the far right. Uh, and at the same time, then you saw Angela Nagel publish uh, a piece in American Affairs about how the left, proper left, ought to also. Be supportive of controls on immigration. I know Atusa, you wrote a response to that piece too that I think was excellent. We could talk about that more too. But I think that there are tendencies within the sort of liberal establishment as well as the left who are ready to concede that okay, borders are going to be the future of you know life on Earth I- inevitably. And I think, especially considering you know how that how that's gone for working people so far and also given the global you know crisis of climate catastrophe that's uh, imminent and under and under, already underway there's really no way to equitably and humanely solve any of those problems um, if if we're conceding from the beginning nationalist boundaries are permanent and um, you know un, un, unbreakable so Here's Bernie Sanders talking at Westminster College uh, late uh, last fall. Foreign policy is about whether we continue to champion the values of freedom, democracy, and justice, values which have been a beacon of hope for people throughout the world, or whether we support undemocratic, repressive regimes which torture, jail, and deny basic rights to their citizens. That's foreign policy. What foreign policy also means is that if we are going to expound the virtues of democracy and justice abroad and be taken seriously, we need to practice those values here at home. Sounds like George Bush. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, Bernie's an interesting uh, figure in this context because when he was running in 2016, he was criticized for not having a foreign policy. He was criticized for being, well, maybe this is really from the left, but he was criticized for having too nationalist a mindset, um, especially for you know somebody who is basically a, a democratic socialist. Mm-hmm. Um, socialism has a long history of internationalism and I don't know if Bernie necessarily was representing that at his last run, but I think his change, his thinking has evolved significantly since then. What do you think? Yeah, I think so too. I, I mean, I said that like jokingly that it sounds like it sounds like George W. Bush um, after nine eleven, but it means something different in the context. Um, but it is interesting that usually that that the left. Um, I think that the idea of like spreading freedom by example was kind of as as a as a as a thing that the American foreign policy should try to do was sort of tainted by the neocons who said that and what they meant was we're going to go and you know invade a bunch of countries and f- forced quote unquote freedom down their throats well so i i desperately want the progressive left not to end up uh following its anti-war core into isolationism yeah. uh and at the same time i i hear 
comments like this, and they do have an uncanny echo of chauvinism, of uh, the, the way to fight Bannon and the global fascists is with a global movement that sounds awfully like American power once again, acting on 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 a world that needs our uh, our wisdom and our ideals. And I tend to think that doesn't turn out too well. At the same time, if the U.S. were by some enormous miracle to lead by example and tax the shit out of Amazon and you know force uh, cities to build affordable housing if mm-hmm. they're letting Amazon into their into their uh, turf. Uh, that wouldn't be the worst kind of example to lead by. And I think when we're dealing with multinational companies, that is powerful. Um, somebody's got to start. Mm-hmm. And it's not the same as invading a country. Uh, it's you, you can set a precedent um, and you can show other governments and other cities and other municipalities that, yeah, this is something you can do. Yeah, And I, th- I think that Bernie, when he talks about you know leading by example, I think he probably means that just as much as Maybe we help some leftists in Spain with their social media, <laughs> which I think they're doing also. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think he obviously doesn't mean he he has been anti-intervention his entire career to a admirable degree. Um, I think that there the challenge is to get into the sort of policy substance of what foreign policy is it, besides war making or not war making, um, and I think that um, that's the kind of political education that needs to happen to some degree because the U.S. left, at least, has thought of it in those terms exclusively for a long time. I mean, the, the, the actionable planks in uh, the, the, both the DM 25 European internationalist agenda and in Sanders's, and, and now also Elizabeth Warren's and others, uh, is, is really important and much harder to do than simply to get the, the war intervention debate, yeah. right? And it is to tax multinationals, force them to repatriate uh, profits, to uh, force companies like Apple to treat their workers the same no matter where they are. And these kinds of, of measures, which I think yeah. all of us understand is really changing the game uh, out there in the world and and here at home, are are much harder because you're not dealing with uh, the government of, of, of Iraq or of Saudi Arabia, but you're dealing with the biggest, richest corporations in the world, which have experience over many decades and many political turns of having their way. Right. The U.S. has enormous amount of financial leverage uh, simply by by virtue of you know having Wall Street and having a lot of financial institutions and a lot of transactions in dollars uh, around the world. Right. So this is this is leverage that a progressive government in the U.S. could use to its advantage. So far, the U.S. has flexed its financial muscle through sanctions, which are politically motivated, um, extraterritorial, and definitely imperialistic, right? Mm-hmm. Whether they're for good or not for good, um, it's definitely the long arm of the U.S. It's definitely a form of chauvinism. Uh, but there are better ways to direct uh, this power, and I don't, I don't think that would be the worst thing in the world. No, I don't think so either. And I think there are, I think there are some simple ways to talk about the um, compelling ways that could work in a campaign about um, you know global taxation and redistribution. It's just kind of patently insane that we have a situation in the global economy where we have so much debt and so much cash sitting dormant, right? And so socializing wealth. To, to, to some much more significant degree on the global level just means putting that cash to work for human beings on Earth instead of just 
creating more and more wealth for the people who have it, who, and, who are just sitting on it. And that's, by the way, one of my favorite things about Votifax is economic analysis, which I, I find very compelling. It's not anti-capitalist. It's not anti-market. He likes wealth. He likes wealth creation. He just wants these markets to be regulated and to be regulated at an international scale. Uh, and, and that's something I'm curious, Atusa, what you found in, in your reporting. How does that play even among the sort of left elite? Something that came up a few times when I was interviewing people about Varoufakis and his his new project uh, was that you know he doesn't pull super well on the ground in Europe. He doesn't. He's not really a grassroots kind of guy. And a bunch of people said, "Well, wouldn't it just be great if if Varoufakis could run the European Central Bank? Wouldn't it be great if he <laughs> could run the IMF? Wouldn't it be great if he just took over the World Bank?" And that's the rub, right? These these posts are not democratically elected posts. If we could all vote Varoufakis for head of IMF, you know, I think actually that would be a, a really good spot for him because he understands the way these things work. Um, but but this also illustrates how hard it is to reform these institutions, right? They're not democratic, and it's it's like a, it's a catch twenty two. Like you can't you can't even begin because because of the blocks. And a much a much uh, suaver and smarter economist than Vodafakis, John Maynard Keynes, who did play the insider game much more effectively than mm-hmm. Vodafakis, tried and failed in the in the thirties and forties to convince the international elite to adopt a global central bank, which would have avoided the kinds of calamities we've had in the last several decades. Uh, which just suggests how hard a challenge it is. Sure, and Varoufakis uh, has been advocating for a new Bretton Woods uh, agreement for for new sets of international agreements and organizations. Um, but it's it's really hard to see how that can begin. Researchers at the Century Foundation have been exploring ways to resolve the conflict in Yemen. For reports on the possible diplomatic solutions to the conflict and America's complicity there, please go to the Century Foundation's website, tcf.org, and search for Yemen, or click on the World section. I'm Thanasi Kambanis. We're back from the break. You're listening to the TCF World Podcast. I'm here with Atusa Araxia Abrahamian and with Sam Adler-Bell. Hey. Hi. Uh, I want to play a clip from... Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez talking about the Green New Deal. Our nation and our world are in a climate crisis, but we have the opportunity to turn the ship around. But we can only do it if we come together and embark upon an ambitious legislation known as the Green New Deal. Do either of you know what a Green New Deal really is? I think basically the idea is to invest in green projects that give people jobs uh, that generate economic growth. This could be, you know, solar panels. Mm-hmm. It could be irrigation systems. I think it depends where you are and what the resources in your location region are. What yeah. what is available? Um, but I think that's it's it's kind of this infrastructure plan that a lot of politicians have been pitching, but green. Yeah, I think it dovetails well with the Democratic Party's embrace, um, at least a few months ago, of a, um, ger- a guaranteed job, a job guarantee. Um, if they combined, you know, a job guarantee with this idea of um, massive investment in, in, in green infrastructure projects, um, that could work. You know, you could put a lot of people to work and you could 
Is this meant to be huge, like of the of the scale of the FDR's New Deal? I think it depends how much power they get, right? Yeah. You can have a Green New Deal in your neighborhood if you if you you know get your get That's the money so small. together. The whole the whole idea of the New Deal was that it was on an enormous scale. Yeah, AOC ain't president yet. Yeah. Um, but I hope. But I th- I think that's the goal, absolutely, and, I, and not just on a national scale, but on an international scale, right? This. W- what this are we talking about a new deal for at a time of an almost full employment economy? Well, it depends how you calculate full employment, and you can also argue that a lot of people aren't making enough money, right? The jobs aren't good enough, and so having some form of job guarantee would raise the caliber of of these jobs and raise wages too. Or they are doing. Uh, what David Graeber calls bullshit jobs. You know, they're doing jobs that aren't fulfilling, that don't make people feel like they're participating in something larger than themselves. And is this a bullshit job? W- our, this job this that now? we have? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Doing this podcast, <laughs> you mean, or, or just being writers? <laughs> um, I don't know. How fulfilled are you, Thanasis? We'll talk about that after the <laughs> podcast. So I was <clears throat> thinking about those French protests, uh, the Yellow Jacket protests, which on the one hand sounded kind of reactionary and on the other hand were really about this quality of life rather than are you employed or not yeah. uh, gap. Uh, let's listen to, to some sound from, from Paris last year. Nous aujourd'hui on est la jeunesse, on rentre dans le travail, mais maintenant on est incertain. Même avec un CDI, on n'est plus certain de rien. Moi je suis en retraite, euh, bah, on n'arrive plus à vivre quoi. Hein, quand on a payé les factures, il faut pas qu'il y ait de coups durant route. Hein. Alors quand on a tout payé, il reste plus rien. These protesters are calling for Macron to resign. They're saying, we're the youth, we go to get jobs, we have no security, we work full time and still can't be certain of anything. And the last person we heard is saying, I'm retired and still not able to live and pay all my bills. Yeah, sounds like the U.S. more than France, or at least the way we think of it, right? That's yeah. what struck me is the the way they're talking. The people who oppose Macron are talking. It's precarity, and that that's happening all over the world. Yeah, I think that the yeah, yeah the Yellow Jackets is so interesting because it definitely. I think it did start. The, the spark was the opposition to an increase in the fuel tax, right? And so people who are in you know more rural areas who had to travel. Um, to get to work were in some ways they, they were the spark of it. But I think it represents the fact that like we are going to be in a global situation where climate uh, the, you know, the necessities of fighting climate change and and and, and mitigating its worst uh, consequences is going to require is, is going to produce these kinds of contradictions all the time. And I think that the yellow jacket actually gives me hope that when that happens, Reactionary forces aren't the only ones who are going to be able to benefit from it because it is. It, my, it's my impression now from people I know in Paris and reporting that I've read that it really is a, a, a mass movement, a populist movement with um, a pretty, you know, an anti-capitalist message to some degree, and so. also some some reactionary core values. And it goes back to something you two were talking about earlier, which is parochial national concerns that trump really important things like. Right. Climate change, which has to be fought on a global basis, or quality of of jobs, which is something that can't be uh, adjudicated on a, on a national level. I think that what happened in France is representative of what will happen all over the world in the absence of like a much more egalitarian global economy and, and national economies, which is that the 
hardship and austerity that is going to that that climate change or climate policy might produce um, is going to be borne exclusively by the working class and the poor. And so we could think about it that way. It's not necessarily reactionary to say that the effects of climate policy ought to be borne by the wealthy as much as the working class. Sure. And I like to think, and it's true, there are definitely reactionary elements in in France, absolutely 100%. And it does seem like this movement is being hijacked in some way by the right, by the far right. But I also like to think that it could have been any tax, right? I don't know that it was a specific two-carbon tax. It could have been VAT. People still would have been pissed off because the sentiment is poor people and working people are paying for this, not rich people and and also on some of the rich countries. This goes back to what we were saying. What responsibility does the U.S. have? Is it chauvinistic to say we need to lead by example? Well, actually, you're kind of screwing up a lot of the environment disproportionately. So maybe you should play a bigger role. Yeah. Where where does the poor world or the global south fit into this progressive international? Not very much yet. Fernando Haddad, who is the leader of the Brazilian uh, left, the biggest Brazilian another, left party. Another failed political politician another who's joining da- this uh, Another dashing, club. dashing man with an excellent haircut um, <laughs> <laughs> and charisma for days, but not much of an electoral strategy. Yeah, um, he was there. Uh, he was in Vermont. He did an event with Varoufakis in, uh, at the New School. So they're trying. Um, they talk so the a lot about... So the leftists and the progressives who win elections aren't part of this thing. Who are they? Well, they don't need... Maybe they Podemos, don't need... Podemos, <laughs> let's say... Uh, I mean, even Jeremy Corbyn, who I'm not such a great fan of, but at least he won his party leadership race. Yeah, he he doesn't well, seem to be willing to touch it with a stick. Well, maybe that's what maybe that's really one of the things we should talk about is that there is this. It, it that's the central challenge, right? Like, um, there there seem it seems to be hard not to think of there being a trade off between self determination and sort of a global. Um, global economic order, a global political movement. Um, and so it seems like the savvy move right now is to do something like what UK labor is doing, or at least Corbin, Corbynites in UK labor, which is turning in slightly and saying, you know, we need to get ours and we, um, you know, we should have a much, much more, uh, you know, redistributive economy and people should be, working class people should be doing better. But, you know, they are, there's a strain of Euroscepticism, right, in that, um, in that party and in that movement, which, you know, in some ways would seem like the savvy thing to do to win elections in this, you know, sort of rising nationalist moment. Here's, here's Varoufakis addressing that point at a, at a DM25. That's the Democracy in Europe uh, 2025 movement that he founded. My job is to create as much trouble as I can for the powers that be and for the uh, Nationalist International, which is a grave concern for all of us Democrats what we now need to do in Europe, which is to combine the forces of Democrats that are both of a Marxist predisposition and a liberal one, to stem the tide that is pushing us into circumstances that are inimical to the interests of civilization. Oh, that's a mouthful. I think what Varoufakis ends up running into time and time again is that it's hard to win national elections when you don't really believe in national elections. Right. When when you would rather have everyone in the world have a say, it's, it's very hard to corral this this feeling into a, into a national bordered context. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And well, this, and, and borders aren't just scars, right? Borders de- delineate nations, which many of us, including myself, feel uh, are part of our identities. Even even international people who care about the rest of the world mm-hmm. find themselves. Uh, uh, with an affinity to their language group and their fellow passport holders. And I think this whole exercise smacks of a dangerous kind of off-putting snobbery if you hear too much like, oh, only parochial peasants Mm. are still caught up in national identity. And you you want to tell that to an American worker or a Mexican worker or a French yellow jacket Mm. uh, who can't pay for their medicine, that I think probably isn't a great mobilizing Right. In, in fairness, though, DM25's position on, on borders and migration is this. You shouldn't have to move unless you want to, right? You shouldn't have to leave your village or your country or your city or your people or your community um, because you are out of money or because you are fleeing war or because climate change is making it untenable. I think that there is an acknowledgement that people do feel tied to places. Um, and there's also an acknowledgement that they would rather not leave, right? If you opened all the borders tomorrow... Probably most people wouldn't rush to them and try to go somewhere else because we have families, we have friends. Like these things are not totally arbitrary. Uh, and I I'm not hear sure where that, I'm actually not sure that's true. And I think if you look at a country like the Philippines, that's still relatively democratic and has uh, open, uh, you know, open borders, as its people have become its biggest export. And because mm-hmm. its people are well educated and trained enough to get jobs all over the world, but that's state policy, yeah. right? That's that's the way that they've run their education system and their economy. I don't think that it's because individuals would just prefer to live elsewhere. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, but when there's not an opportunity for them at home, and they can leave mm-hmm. elsewhere, they do. I yeah, think unhappily, that- but willingly. And that's and, and and that's the very real risk of an open border system. It doesn't end up being a la la land where people stay near their families. People will will emigrate to pursue jobs. So. They will, but it's not going to be every single person in the world. And I, I would posit that having people move around actually makes us all richer. Um, but, the, but this you isn't to say... You mean that metaphorically, right? Or you no, mean literally no. Richer? I think literally too. I think there's a lot of studies that show migration is really good for economies. Um, but, but before we get into that, I see your point about you know, this seeming like a highfalutin, you know, snobby, uh, detached position on borders. Um, But I also think it is necessary to acknowledge the arbitrariness of borders um, and the destruction that they can cause in the world, as well as, you know, realize that we're probably going to be living with them for the foreseeable future. Yeah, and I I think also the the fact that the sort of easy response to all of this is to say it's cosmopolitan snobbery to embrace this kind of thinking is why this kind of thinking and a and a, and a stra- program that embraces it and that that is that makes sense to people is so important because the the idea that globalism is a co- cosmopolitan elite project is because it has been, right? It's it just easier been to think of nationalism. But, it, but, that's, but that's not true, right? I mean, the truth is that clo- globalism and cosmopolitanism is mostly practiced by the poor, not the rich. It's not Varoufakis on his motorcycle with his you know, multiple passports and, and great outfits. It's the, the, the Salvadoran worker, the Filipino migrant, the Cuban doctor in but Africa. That's, but, that's the, that, but, but that actually is what globalism is. And, what, and what's happened is, We've let this narrative be hijacked by right wingers and nativists who have portrayed this as the project of you know people who go to the ballet Russe and speak three languages and are somehow awful. So to we're agreeing that. in that. 
Yeah, we are, we are agreed, and, and and well, I mean, I think where I'm disagreeing is in the emphasis where I say we should we should encourage unapologetic uh, defense and and praise of internationalism as it's actually lived by real people yeah. who aren't at all members of the elite, and then try and, and make sure those people get the same good fair deal that we all deserve when we negotiate our job contracts and go get health insurance and try and put our kids in school. Yeah, I think that the the idea that it's going to be a huge disaster if there's much more open border policy is only true in the absence of all the other parts of this, you know, program. If wages in Mexico were much higher, then people would not want to leave. Uh, you know, we have to we have to think about all the pieces of this together. Redistribution of wealth and power, political power, is still central to the left project and always is. So first, a coherent agenda, and second, a way to actually mobilize people around it. People have mobilized around the far Americans right. Americans or, or other people. Yeah, well, people have mobilized around the far right uh, f- probably for three reasons. One is economic insecurity. Two is fear. And three is like really good messaging on the f- part of the far right. I think the left has just as much a claim to you know fixing economic insecurity as the far right. Yep. The left could theoretically do a way better job conveying its message. And... I mean, I Badu think, Fakis is supposed to be our answer to Steve Bannon. And he's I'm not come to the U.S. and give us advice the way Bannon has gone to Italy and given uh, the neo Nazis there. Well, a, he a did. Strategy. He did come here and, and he did give us some advice, and I and I don't know that it went over super well. Um, you know, Bernie Sanders isn't totally on board with this just because it's the Sanders Institute, not Bernie the senator, and uh, he's pretty cautious about embracing this. I mean, imagine if Bernie was president and he was on board with this thing. That would be kind of that would be really radical, and I, I would I think that's great, but I don't know if it would fly with the lobbyists in Washington, yeah. right? Yeah, I think it would be great. <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> but getting popular support behind these ideas uh, does require a lot more kind of gra- sounds boring, but like grassroots organizing, right? You need people on the ground getting unions, people like can yeah, you need unions, you need progressive institutions. There's also an important top-down element to this, which I think is is in play for the first time in my lifetime, where you have elected politicians breaking taboos, embracing internationalism, criticizing Israeli policy, uh, uh, showing solidarity with foreign workers from poorer countries, yeah. things that were considered politically impossible or suicidal in the recent past, and people are getting elected doing these things, that opens a lot of doors. And one thing uh, just about the, the the different challenges for the far right and the left, it's, it's always, and this is sort of almost a platitude now, but it's always easier to throw bombs at international institutions and say, screw it, we don't want to be a part of this, than it is to say, we need to revamp this or fix it or politicize it in a way that it can benefit more people. You know, the, being anti-globalist is fun because you can just go into European Parliament and pull your pants down. But if you want to actually change the material circumstances of people around the world using some of these institutions as one of the pathways, then you actually have to defend, you know, the project. Will you two agree to come on this podcast again in about a year and assess what happened to this idea? The Once, Progressive International? Yeah. Sure. Sure. Well, I think all the wealth of TCF will be um, you know, redistributed and nationalized by then, so this podcast might not yeah, exist. Yeah, we might be in the gulag or something. Let's hope not, and, uh, and, and if need be, we can produce this on our, on our iPhones. Uh, <laughs> you've been listening to the TCF World Podcast. 
I'm Thanasi Kambanis. Uh, you were listening to Atusa Araxa Abrahamian. Thanks for joining us, Atusa. Thanks for having me. And Sam Adler Bell. Thanks. TCF World has been brought to you by the Century Foundation, a progressive public policy think tank that seeks to foster opportunity, reduce inequality, and promote security at home and abroad. For more information about the work that TCF does, please visit tcf.org or follow us on Twitter and Facebook.